met each other for the first time over at TeslaCon, and um, it was actually before that. We were at the... I saw you and Sandy in the, in the Monroe team at the bar, um, and you guys were getting freaking mobbed, like super, super mobbed. Can you, like... I'm so curious to hear, what was that experience like? Like, did you, did you expect to have that much attention, uh, like, towards you guys in that sort of setting? Did it take you by surprise? Walk me through that a little bit. It, it did take us by surprise, particularly when we went to that bar. Um, we were surrounded essentially by the perfect demographic of people that should have seen our content. So um, oftentimes, Sandy and I will be walking through an airport, particularly in California, and Sandy will get noticed once or twice, every airport, but to be stopped every two feet for Sandy and he had like 10 or 15 beers purchased for him. I even had several people offer to buy drinks for me that the tall, tall buff guy from Australia, I forget his name, Joel. He was very friendly. Um, the Tesla universe people were all there. They were friendly. Um, but I, I met some amazing people and many of them have followed up after the trip and uh, we've we've stayed in contact. Some of them had different business ventures. Um, so it was really actually a fruitful trip. But getting mobbed in that in that bar was was wild. Uh, and and I remember telling Sandy when we had to get him out. Uh, Eric and I. So Eric was there with me. We rushed him out like Secret Service style. Like we almost covered him with our coats so people wouldn't see him. And um, yeah, but it's. It feels good to know that that we're actually making an impact in many of these people's lives, and and most of the comments that we get is that many people were, you know, bullish on Tesla while the whole world was really down on them back in 2015, 16, 17, and then in 2018 through 2020, uh, our tune on Tesla, particularly from the, what we found tearing them down, turned po more positive, and a lot of people gave us. Uh, a lot of props for really helping them uh, because many people had invested or they were early Tesla owners. So that was the the heartwarming thing is to hear the positive feedback from from all the people. Absolutely, yeah. I remember I remember when um, you guys started tearing down the Model Three. It was like the first. It was the first, uh, one of the loudest, most um, trusted voices that came out in support for the things that Tesla was doing during a really, what seemed like a very tumultuous, crazy time that, you know, with the Model 3 ramp and everything that was going on around the company. I remember that was that was one of the things that brought my attention to you guys. And then since then, you have put together this incredible sort of, uh, essentially like a database of, of all these different cars, not just Teslas, into like hardcore engineer like the hardcore engineering aspect of it you guys are talking about threads on a screw you guys are talking about the the, the minutia of what it takes to be uh, a successful car company down to the smallest of details how how encouraged are you that there's there's an audience for that because i feel like in my head i'm like man this is like super it's obviously like super technical you know super nerdy stuff that uh, a few people might enjoy but there seems to be really broad support are you surprised by that broad support um, I, I am surprised by the, the broad support from the greater public, but I'm not surprised uh, in the interest from tier ones, tier twos, and automotive companies, because this is what Monroe and Associates has been doing for the better part of the past 15 years. Uh, starting back in 2007, 8, and 9, Monroe and Associates supported the cost 
uh, development for the CAFE standards, uh, along with a company called FEV. So that study actually uh, uh, allowed us to study uh, emerging technologies for fuel economy uh, improvement, which would be like mild hybrids, belt start generator units, like the Saturn View BSG hybrid. So Monroe and Associates, we had a great head start on analyzing battery technology and some of the, the lower level uh, hybrid hybrid vehicles. So as we progressed through the decade, we took a big risk in buying the BMW i3 in 2014 and 15. And frankly, that project was a big loser. And because that project was a loser, many of the people in the company was against Monroe tearing down a Model 3 because we had lost so much money on the BMW i3. So a little bit of history, the BMW i3, we purchased the vehicle and we decided to do the most detailed cost analysis that our company is capable of. It cost us close to $2 million of effort paying our employees to develop this report. And what we found out is people did not want to pay uh, you know, three or $400,000 for that data, it was just too soon. So when the Tesla Model 3 came out in late 2017, early 2018, I was one of the proponents that said, we got to do this vehicle because myself and, and about uh, 15 other people were supporting another large OEM and we were analyzing other Teslas and other EVs. And I, I came in back of support of Sandy and we ended up doing a pared down teardown. So the Model 3, we did not go to the same level of detail, about one third of the effort. And that's the sweet spot. So we kind of hit a home run with the Model 3. We repeated with the Model Y. And then the Model Y is where, you know, I push Sandy to disseminate on YouTube. And that's where we've really taken off. So that's where we've getting the, we've really gotten the public exposure. Because when we did the Model 3, uh, companies like uh, Bloomberg, Jalopnik, um, Autoline with John McElroy, they would cover our teardown. And I noticed that like on John McElroy's channel, the videos where Sandy was on after hours or the Model 3 profile was getting 300,000 to 800,000 views and all of his other videos were getting 5,000 views. So I was like, come on, Sandy, let's, let's bottle this lightning up for ourselves. And we've kind of taken that to the next level. Um, and now we have a team of people cranking content out. Yeah, it's that's it's awesome. I think when I when you and I spoke briefly at the, I think it was at, at Giga Texas. Like one one of my comments was, like I can't believe so much of your stuff is free. Like I know like you guys obviously have a lot of paid research and everything like that. Obviously a lot of the detail is as it, as it rightfully should be is 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 sold because you guys put a ton of labor. But you still cover a lot of like things on on the channel that are. Um, that are like people just don't see like like the one thing that 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 I've been following lately is has been your Rivian uh, teardown. Yeah. So I watched the first couple of videos you guys put out, um, and it's just you know having worked at Tesla, having following Tesla for ten years, like it's really cool watching you guys start tearing down a Tesla because I'm familiar with it. But now that I'm sort of trying to broaden my horizons to other EVs and everything like that, it's super fascinating seeing how you guys are starting to tear into different models as well. And the Rivian one is is really fascinating because. I feel like that's one of the potential vehicles that could that could be very very successful in the future as long as they can scale up and do it profitably. Um, along those lines, I had a question around around the Rivian turnout, and you obviously you, you share as much as you're comfortable sharing. But uh, one of the things that I find fascinating about Tesla is that 
They're uh, great innovators uh, from a, a feature standpoint, but they're also great innovators from a manufacturing standpoint. So you get both. So you have really cool features that are unique, you know, over-the-air updates, uh, whatever, you know, full self-driving, whatever you want to call it. But then you have the structural battery pack and the single-piece casting for the front and the rear and stuff like that. So as you're getting into these newer manufacturers like a Rivian and other vehicles, are you seeing that same level of innovation from a manufacturing perspective, uh, not just a feature set perspective, or is it too early to tell? I'm curious to sort of hear your thoughts around that a little bit. Yeah. So the answer is never like yes or no. So it's not like, yes, Rivian uh, is is great from a manufacturing perspective or no. There's varying levels of maturity uh, throughout the vehicle. And so far, I've been pleasantly surprised, uh, particularly with the heavy use of nylon lines throughout the vehicle. So the lines are all PA11, PA12 lines with quick connects. And we've dropped the battery and those lines run on top, you know, on the body, on top of the battery. So that was clearly taken from Tesla's strategy. So oftentimes Monroe and Associates is not just telling people, hey, do the cheapest thing, cut costs, you know, go for the lowest cost. Sometimes investing money in more, in more expensive nylon lines allows you for a high, higher probability for quality throughout the life of the vehicle and lower probability for error during assembly. So um, traditional OEMs would use low-cost constant tension spring clamps throughout, EPDM hoses that are easily, easily formed. Um, but you run into a lot of issues with manufacturing, decking problems, and we've even seen some OEMs that built in large, like, zigzag spring sections only to deck as the body comes down. It's it's wild, the, the amount of inefficiency. So your question is, where is Rivian at? Um, I, if I had to, from a 1 to 10, 10 being, like, the best in the world and 1 being atrocious, I'd put them at like a six or a seven from what I've seen so far. Pleasantly surprised with the amount of effort and conciseness with how some of the lines are routed. They're not at the level of integration that we see that Tesla is at. Um, still a little bit of a fragmented design. We dropped the rear cover off and they have a traditional, uh, you know, tube, uh, huge tube for the air suspension when other OEMs will integrate that into existing parts, like Tesla integrated that into the the cross member in the front uh, in the front end of the Model S. Um, but as a startup, there's a lot of opportunity for improvement. So what I see is a good effort from Rivian, but cl clearly well over 10% uh, of an opportunity for cost reduction or improvement in manufacturing, which bodes well for the company. At no point will the first products be the best ever, especially for a startup. And look back at the, the Model S and the X, oh my gosh. I mean, between the seats and the battery structure with 14 or, oh, oh my gosh. Um, and I remember tearing down an early Model S and the accelerator pedal, we pulled it out on the side of it, just said Ford Motor Company, you know, FOMOCO right on the side. You're like, well, well part spin. Um, so I would say opportunity for improvement, but nowhere near the bottom. And if you compare like a Chevy Bolt, when we first got a, a Chevy Bolt, that thing was atrocious from an integration perspective. Box on top of box on top of box with lines running everywhere, all different directions. Um, nowhere near that level of of fragment fragmentation
Got it. And so when you think about it from a sort of improvement uh, cadence on that on that platform, if you compare, say, a Rivian, who's a newcomer, and I believe they is Ford still a part owner of Rivian? I forget. I, can, I know, I know they, they used they to sold, be. They sold their share. They sold their shares. Um, I'm wondering, do you think that's an it's obviously going to be difficult, whoever you are, whatever company you are, it takes a lot of effort and time and sort of ingenuity to make improvements on that platform over time. But do you think it's uh, an easier task for a company that's brand new, like say a Rivian or Lucid or whoever, versus an existing automaker like a Ford or GM? How do you think about that? Um, I, I think some of the existing OEMs that we have interfaced with, they have so much momentum and culture aligned to how they've done things in the past. And you can look into um, massive powertrain organizations that for the ba better part of the past 60 or 80 years have developed internal combustion engines or transmissions. Those organizations you know, now have nothing to develop into the future. Um, they have to shift to something that's totally foreign to them you know, an electric motor and the circuitry behind it, as well as the transmission essentially dis disappears. You know, most EVs have a simple seven to one or nine to one, you know, single speed gearbox or planetary set. So, um, but that reduction in effort for powertrain, um, it, what I find is a lot of identity is derived from the powertrains from uh, a OEM. So like Mercedes took a lot of pride in their in their powertrain development, BMW as well, GM with their LS platform. And if you look at what an OEM, I think Elon said this best. I think in the All In podcast, he mentioned that, you know, a, a manufacturer, a, uh, like a manufacturer today is essentially an intermediary between a lot of suppliers and a lot of the development work is done at a supplier's and what was core to them was body development and powertrain development. And when you lose powertrain development, now there's very little identity to draw on these OEMs. So you have this huge cultural shift to shift to an EV mindset, particularly when they're still relying so heavily on the profits of internal combustion engine vehicles. So a lot of the, the promises that, that General Motors and Ford and even Stellantis and and you look across the pond, you got J Japan, uh, all the Japanese OEMs. So you got, uh, you know, Nissan and um, the Koreans um, with Hyundai and Kia. They're still going to rely on internal combustion engine sales and the service associated with that for the next at least five to 15 years. And it's like, when do you, when do you break up with that culture and shift? And I think Ford's doing a great job by separating uh, the company, you know, with their Model E and then the old the old regime. Uh, GM has committed heavily in marketing, but frankly, we haven't seen the GM products. It's we're in the almost the second half of 2022, and how many EVs do they sell in the first quarter? 456. I mean, we only have essentially two and a half years left in this half of a decade. When Mary Barra said that they were going to sell more EVs than than Tesla. And, uh, you know, some of these promises are, are kind of like hard to believe. And um, like the Ultium platform, for example, um, I, I studied that extensively, what, what GM has said about it. And frankly, it's like a good idea that's about five to seven years late. 
And if you look at the, the way that they're doing the cells in the batteries, uh, their motor architecture, I think they say they have 19 different configurations for motor architecture and inverter architecture. That's something that VW you know, proposed with the MEB platform seven or eight years ago, and they're already shifting away from that to a better platform. Um, and it's just sometimes I want to see it with my own eyes. And the fact that we haven't tore down an Ultium platform vehicle shows you how far behind they are. Because in, in 2017, the first Tesla Model 3 rolled in our in our facility. That was a half a decade ago. So, Along those lines, are you seeing sort of the gap, you know, with the assumption that Tesla is is uh, tops when it comes to sort of an innovative process, when it comes to manufacturing an electric car and powertrain and so on and so forth, like assuming that they're tops, and I think you and I would probably agree agree on that statement. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, if, but if that's not the case, but uh, assuming that's correct, are you seeing the gap between Tesla and everybody else uh, widening or lessening uh, the more we get into this decade? Are, are you seeing any sort of clues, any hints from other manufacturers? Talk me through that a little bit. If you don't mind. So I have seen some suppliers that are starting to think like Tesla. So TI Fluid Systems, um, which is actually just across the street from Monroe and Associates, they understand that OEMs are going to demand more, a, a higher level of integration from systems that were typically piecemealed together. So that's why when we opened the hood and took the frunk out of the Mach E, we saw a pump here, a valve here, a pump there, and lines everywhere. Because you had commercial off-the-shelf components that are produced in mass in the millions and millions by Bosch and Valio and TI Fluid Systems that would achieve the goal of a thermal system for an EV just fine. And most owners could care less whether you had uh, 40 meters of hoses or 10 meters of hoses. But when an EV uh, range is so important the amount of energy that you're pulling out of the vehicle to pump that fluid, to heat the fluid, the more fluid you have, uh, the more bends you have in the hose, the more resistance there is. It's just like a, you know, death by a thousand cuts. Like you want to get rid of as many cuts as possible. So the thermal systems on particularly the Model 3 with the Super Bottle and then the newer Model 3s, Model Ys, Ss and Xs with the Octo Valve and Super Manifold are just brilliant from an integration perspective. So we're seeing some suppliers start to offer these solutions to OEMs. So when you when you say is the gap closing, yes it is because I think there's some some suppliers that recognize that Tesla essentially did it their own way and rebuffed the the typical development timeline and efforts of suppliers and they designed their own systems in a way that that Everybody else said, oh, no, you can't do it yourself. Well, they just did it themselves. And and the result of that is quite quite honestly some of the most amazing you know pieces of, of engineering we've seen in this building in a while. And you know, I actually want to draw a couple parallels to, to when you're told that you will fail and you don't know what you're doing. It's a great motivator because um, Monroe Live, the channel really only exists because I was actually told uh, by not only some of the management team at Monroe, but other people like, well, you're not a videographer. You don't know anything about audio. You you can't post videos to YouTube. You know, I was told we must hire a 
$20,000 a day film crew to come in and produce like our videos. And I'm like, that's crazy. I mean, look at all these people creating podcasts. So Monroe Live was born out of essentially people telling me like, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, yes, I can. I I can. And and we did it. And, and now Sandy has been like pushed into the stratosphere as a, as a, as an EV guru, an EV figurehead, tear down Titan. And, um, it really hasn't had a massive impact on our, on our core engineering business. Um, we've essentially tripled in size, um, our engineering services. So, um, I see Tesla was, was in that, in that space, you know, not relying on the slower development cycles of, of tier ones and suppliers. They just did it themselves. And that's why everyone thought they were going to fail because no one has, no one has proved that you can go about it a different way. And that different way has, has proved out. That's awesome. That's, that's awesome to hear on multiple levels. Uh, quick question though. So one of the things that I love about you, you guys is you know, tear down Titan, Sandy Monroe. Do you make all the memes or does somebody else make them? Cause those that's memes Eric. are pretty That's Eric. <laughs> okay. So, so we have, we, we have a team of three. So one of the best decisions, that Sandy and I made. It wasn't my decision. So the channel was launched in March of 2020. We were about a year into the effort, and um, I was spending so much time filming and editing videos. I had just done, we had just done the Elon Musk interview that I was not spending enough time doing my actual role, which is president of the engineering firm, you know, HR, hiring, finance, dealing with a bank, growth strategy. Sandy actually stood in this office right here. He's like, I either need to, need to hire a new president or or you need to hire uh, someone to help you out, like a videographer. So I put an ad out and hired Eric and Zach um, to replace the effort of myself and Tyler, who was another engineer who was doing the engineering, who was doing the, the videography and audio work with me. Um, they shadowed us for about three weeks and saw how we did stuff with our iPhones and our and our task cams, our filming style. And then after about a month and a half, they started being self-sufficient with the goal of doing three videos a week. So I wanted three videos a week. That's that is our goal. Um, and we've we've met that goal. I gave them some really tough subscriber growth goals. They hit that. And then Eric on his own, he's like, ah. You know, we have a corporate Twitter, but it's kind of old school and vestigial. And our corporate Twitter at the time had like 20,000 followers. So he's like, I want to start a Monroe Live Twitter. So he started Monroe Live Twitter, and that's taken off. And and he's the one who's creating most of those memes. Um, and occasionally I'll give him an idea, but he'll execute it. So I, I don't want to take credit, but uh, there's a few of them that were my idea. Like the Forrest Gump running one was my idea. I don't know if you saw that one for the road trip, but yeah. Um, but that's Eric and Eric and Zach were so busy that we have actually hired a third. We now have a full-time graphic designer. Uh, her name is Aaron and she is, is handling Snapchat, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram reels, everything that's filmed vertically. So we have like a horizontal team, long form and a vertical team, short firm, uh, short, uh, a form factor. Um, but I mean, you know, you produce a lot of content for your channel. It it's more than a full-time job and we got a team of three now. So, yeah, that's so awesome. I mean, that's, that's such a cool story of, of like 
literally just start doing it. it, it and if, if there's an opportunity for you to, if there's an opportunity there in front of you, just take it by the horns. And then once the momentum builds, then you figure out how to sort of, you know, delegate and make it happen for that point forward, you know? So that's such an awesome story. Um, if I can go back to the supplier thing real quick, there is, so it's great to hear that there are suppliers now that are starting to, at, at the very least, attempting to, or sometimes matching, or even perhaps exceeding what Tesla is doing from their end. Uh, uh, at least some suppliers are. Do you think, um, is there ever going to be an opportunity, you think, for some of these manufacturers to potentially bring some of these guys in-house and vertically integrate them within the company like a Tesla's doing for, to, to try and at least um, secure the speed of that innovation versus just, you know, be being at the whims of the supplier if they somehow decide that, hey, you know what, innovating faster on this doesn't make a lot of sense for us from a cost perspective or whatever. Or do you think that this is going to be sort of um, how everyone else is going to do it, where they're going to retain the supplier structure, tier one, two, and three, and sort of uh, avoid bringing stuff in-house? How do you think about that? Do you see a trend at all yeah. that's happening? I still think the large OEMs are going to avoid bringing suppliers in-house and start with the most expensive part of an EV, the battery system. Um, we have a, a, there's a huge study done by a company called Mark Lines, which highlights all of the battery suppliers and who they're aligned with. And even Tesla early on was aligned with Panasonic uh, and CATL for some of their cell manufacturing. The big shift is, are they making, are they buying the cells and are they making the pack? And um, a lot of the pack construction is dictated by the internal OEMs, um, but if there's such a dichotomy, it's not a dichotomy, it, there's such a vast difference between every battery pack we see, there's no convergence. And what I mean about convergence is at, at some point, there will be the best way to do it from, from a cost, weight, gravimetric, and volumetric perspective, meaning the most energy per, gra per, per weight, per volume, per cost. Once that is achieved, you'll see the whole industry move to that. And I'll give you an example. Uh, if you've ever done a brake job on any vehicle, you can pretty much do a brake job on every vehicle. Whether you have a sliding caliper or a fixed caliper, typically you have you know two bolts on the backside, you pull the caliper off, you gotta grease the pins, the slides. The, the braking system is so important that it has sent, it essentially converged. Even though you had a half dozen suppliers that developed braking systems, Akibono, Brembo, all these, they've converged into the best design. You don't see a new vehicle launch with all-wheel drum brakes. You know, so there'll be a point, probably 15 years in the future, where you'll you may have a convergence where um, you'll probably have two cell form factors. It might be 4680 and then LFP blade style. Um, but but the that is it's like the battery construction. So taking the cells and constructing the constructing the pack, you have some OEMs that have structural packs. You have some OEMs that don't have structural packs, like Tesla on the Model 3 and the Model Y, they're not structural packs, but they're shifting to a structural pack with the 4680. BYD has that really nice blade that's like the whole width of the car. Um, that's an amazing battery, so essentially one giant module. And then you have more vestigial OEMs that still have anywhere from 12 to 24 individual modules. Every time you have a module, you introduce more connections, more space and gap between each ones. You have additional fasteners, 
adif- additional connections for for monitoring temperature and uh, the voltage. You have additional connections for your thermal system. It's just asinine to me that some OEMs are extolling the virtues of their battery architecture when it's filled with over a dozen modules. I see the whole sh- the whole shift uh, of battery architecture going to cell to pack. Essentially, your pack is one giant uh, cell. You know, one giant combination of cells. Imagine if your cell phone had fourteen little tiny batteries in it. Think about that. You open the back of your iPhone. And instead of one or two, because, you know, depending on the shape, I think they sometimes have one or two batteries in there. Imagine there being 14 little little batteries and one of them fails and they have all the little connections. And you're like, man, why didn't they just make one battery? It's so obvious when you look at like a cell phone, the, the amount of integration and, and elegance there. But for some reason, when it comes to automobiles, you know, they, they can say, oh, well, then we can make the same module and put it in all of our vehicles. Well, then all of your vehicles are compromised. Like, that's what I don't understand. Um, but, and, and I don't remember the original question. I started with batteries. Uh, you said convergence. Yeah, no, it was the, um, my, my question was around the, um, Oh my goodness! What was it? Do I have this thing down on paper? I think it was a. It was a. We were talking. Oh, the suppliers bringing it in house. Bring suppliers, uh, manufacturers bringing suppliers in house, and then we started talking about the battery and the powertrain. Yeah. So I, I still see suppliers playing a major, major role in most vestigial OEMs, the old school OEMs. And unfortunately, if you look at the business model, when you have a supplier, if they're in business, they're making a profit margin, right? Let's say they're honest and it's a 10% profit margin. Typically, the automotive industry, it's very difficult to make money. It's a race to the bottom, meaning the supplier with the lowest cost will typically get the work. The lowest cost with the right technology. It's not always the lowest, lowest. Because that 10% profit margin exists on every part, and sometimes more when it comes to critical systems like software and uh, electronics, who pays for that added profit margin that the OEM has to pay out to all the suppliers, the consumer or the shareholder? Um, that's why um, most people thought Tesla would fail is because the way they were calculating the cost of an EV on paper was was with using the supply base, adding 10% and all this inefficiency, including the dealer network and advertising. So... I forget the the number. I think it's anywhere from two hundred to six hundred dollars per vehicle is just advertising. You know the the ads you watch during the Super Bowl or or what you see on billboards, and pulling all that cost out makes the vehicle affordable, more affordable, and profitable. And uh, back in two thousand and eighteen, when we finished our Model Three report, Sandy went on record saying that our cost for the vehicle was thirty five thousand dollars. On an earnings call in the, and that that is should cost. That's what it should cost. And on an earnings call in uh, 2021 or early 2022, Elon said that the cost of his vehicles, one of the vehicles, was thirty five thousand dollars. So we were actually right back in 2018. 
And and I said, why aren't we making a more a bigger deal of this? Like, and people forget when you're right five years ago. So, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's a that that's a really so great call with that. I mean, I, the fact that you guys were able to break down and, and piece every single cost every single piece is a gigantic deal. And the fact that you guys were able to get so accurate is. I think should be more well known, but I think what's what's interesting about what you just walked through is that still, like I feel like the, some OEMs are are essentially trapped in a scenario where it, it sounds like bringing it in house and take out some of those costs, like that ten percent cut that an OEM would take theoretically would behoove them to do that, but they already have so many costs embedded in the system that it might end up being much harder to execute against that than say a Tesla, which has already planned to do that from the beginning, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's just it's just fascinating to watch. Like, like the the thing I, I really want, I really want every single manufacturer of, of vehicles to succeed, because there's there's so many jobs uh, uh, attached to that. You know, like I don't think anyone wants, uh, you know, say Ford, GM, whoever, Stellantis, whoever. I don't think anybody really truly wants them to go out of business. But it just sounds like it sounds like there is almost this. I don't know if you're familiar with the Innovator's Dilemma. It's a book that came out not too long ago. Um, but they essentially talk about how uh, if you're in a, if you're uh, somebody that's been in industry for a long time, you're going to have a lot of things embedded into your company, kind of like what you talked about. That's not really going to allow you to make the optimal decisions to move the, to that disruption that's disrupting you, essentially, right? Um, yeah. Are you? I mean, based on what you're seeing, I know you talked a little bit about GM. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Like, say, if you think about the say. Think about like the, I don't know, just think about the rest of the autom uh, automakers, I guess, outside of Tesla. Like, are you optimistic that most of them will survive in the next 10 to 15 years or are you more pessimistic or do you not think about it that way? Curious um, to hear. I think they will all survive. And uh, failure is very difficult. You know, it's difficult to actually have the total, like a 2008, 2009, where everyone's at the verge of bankruptcy. Um, vehicles are going to get more expensive. And the reason they're getting more expensive, you have multi-factors. So you have inflationary factors. You have, you know, everybody's getting paid more, rising rising wages. And now um, the average transaction price for vehicles is an all-time high. And who that damages the most is the people's cars brand, the people's car. Now I know Volkswagen is actually the people's car, but you know, VW, General Motors, Chevy, you know, these brands where they relied on selling a, a Chevy Cruze for $18,000 or a, or the lower cost Equinoxes for 25,000, they now have to enter the market with the average transaction price, 32,000 to 50,000 to make money. Now, can you sell the car? Yes. Can you make money? Not as much. And I actually thought it was pretty wise when FCA abandoned their small cars back in like 2017 or 18, because they were expensive to make and they weren't making any money. So why continue to do the same thing for no reason? And they, they weren't they weren't able to compete against like the Honda Accords or Toyota Camrys or Corollas. They were trying to like enter that market with the Chrysler 200 and the Dodge Dart, and they pulled the plug on it. And they were kind of ridiculed in in the Detroit area for a while 
But now they've shifted to making more profitable large cars like the Challenger and the the Charger and then SUVs, which have a higher average transaction price uh, for the same, roughly the same cost to build, like with their small Jeeps and whatnot. I thought it was really a wise move by Marchione back in the day. And unfortunately, with the merger of Stellantis a Chrysler into, you know, what PSA for Stellantis, I think some of that momentum is lost and we'll have to see where they come out on the other end with their electrification. Uh, Ford, on the, Ford, on the other hand, I think they have a good head start, but clearly from the teardown of our Mach-E, which we highlighted, I would say it's a good EV. Um, it has a good, good range but the fact that there's so much room for improvement means that there's hope for a much more refined, much more refined Ford products in the future. If we were seeing amazing products right out of the gate, and they and they still weren't making money or or they weren't selling well, then then I'd be like, oh man, this isn't good. But I'm always an optimist. I'm always a glass glass half full type of person. So I see a lot of momentum with with the Ford products that that we have seen so far. Sandy and I got invited down to check out the Maverick. I, I thought that was a really well-executed vehicle. But unfortunately, we just haven't seen the GM products. We have a Lyric on order. We have a Hummer on order. Uh, Sandy's seen the Hummer EV like half a year ago when he was interviewed on Bloomberg. He saw it. And frankly, I think it's a big miss for them going with that 9,000-pound behemoth with a 3,000-pound battery. It's, it was like they were trying to prove a point that nobody cared about. Like, hey, look, we can electrify this huge thing. They would have been better off leading with a retro blazer that looked like the blazer from the 80s, about the size of the Bronco, but electrified. Think about it. That would be a home run. If they were selling an electric retro uh, blazer right now, same segment as the Bronco, they would be sold out forever. They just whiffed on that. So, I mean, based based on what you described, is it, is it fair to assume that in the coming, I mean, so with the combination of inflation and the fact that you can't buy really a, a new car for what seems like under 25, 30 grand at, at these levels, um, and the fact that you have automakers uh, coming into the EV market more at the middle top range, I'm guessing, you know, the, the, the Mach-E is, I think it starts at what, 35 or 40 or something like that. Yeah. So it's still not very affordable. Um, I mean, is it fair to assume that in the next, you know, call it for the next three to five years, I guess, that there's going to be basically no options in the lower tier price level? Is that fair to assume? Yeah, what we're seeing is most OEMs are leading with their high dollar vehicles. So, leading, you know, GM leading with the Hummer and the Lyric. So look at the average transaction price if you blend them together, 110, 120,000, and then like they say 52,000, but I bet the first whole year's worth of Lyrics are the higher end version, right? The 60, $70,000. And then you'll see them probably lead with, you know, electrified versions of the Silverado, big, heavy, expensive. And um, they're gonna start high because that makes business sense. Um, and Elon Musk actually pointed this out when he was asked why, you know, why aren't you working on the development of your low cost uh, Bev. And he said, well, you know, we already have like years worth of demand of our Model 3, Model Y, S and X, you know, so what, you know, let's let the, I think he wanted to let that play out. And then once the demand wanes on that, then he can enter the market with a low cost, a lower cost Bev. 
Yeah. And, and then, uh, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so, and then under that assumption, so say you're a manufacturer that you're, you know, I'm going to use Toyota as an example, and let's just assume they have an EV. Actually, I'll use GM. I'll use GM because they, actually, I'll use Ford because <laughs> they actually have an EV. So um, it's no secret that this year, because of a lot of supply chain issues, a lot of these automakers have actually lost a lot of ground in Q1 because they really can't get the supply out, right? And then as they transition towards, you know, and let, let's assume that as we go through the years, there's more and more people wanting to buy EVs. And we know these manufacturers are introducing EVs at the middle to higher range. Um, but then it sounds like they're going to be selling less cars net as the years go by because of that. And if that's the case, and then correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't that mean that the lower cost vehicles immediately become unprofitable because you're just not pushing enough supply through the factories? Am I thinking about that correctly? Um, yes and no. So now there are some cars in the United States which sell hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Like the best selling globally cars are like, I don't know, like the, the Camry, the Corolla, the Tacoma, they sell a lot, a lot of Hyundai vehicles, the Elantra and the, the Santa Fe, they sell like five or 600,000. There's a point the only point you need to really make the business case strong for a vehicle is about 125,000 vehicles a year. 200, so 250,000, 125,000. When you get over that amount, over 125,000, now the amortization of your tooling and the the keeping a, a whole factory busy for the whole year, you've hit that point. So there's diminishing returns when you go from 125,000 to 250 to 375,000 to half a million to a million. There are some advantages, uh, particularly if you can really make a plant super efficient. And um, there's, uh, you know, but you really get hurt when it becomes a niche vehicle. So if it's a low cost vehicle and you're only able to sell 20 to 40,000 a year, you're losing money because the throughput's not there to keep the plant busy. The throughput's not there to keep your suppliers busy. You might be paying penalties. So seeing the bolt uh, sell 40,000 a year, that, you know, that can be, you know, a disadvantage for your profit margins and not reaching the scale that you really needed. Yeah, got it. Yeah, the the reason why I'm asking this question is because, you know, it, it it sounds like the the twenty to thirty, even I'll use the eighteen to thirty thousand, thirty five thousand dollar car market appears to be the available supply of that car market appears to be dwindling fast. And so, if I put that within the context of Tesla's uh, attempt with the robo taxi as an example, or even a twenty five thousand dollar vehicle, it seems like they'd be entering a market that is basically wide open for them. You know, um, do you think that? Well, A, do you think that that robo-taxi is a, is a legitimate thing in the next couple of years for it to come to start hitting the roads in the United States? And if that's the case, like the assumption I would make is that that's just going to be a surefire hit because everything else is way more expensive than, than what it would take theoretically to run a robo-taxi. Um, yeah. wa walk me through that a little bit. I actually think you'll see other startup players enter the robo-taxi market. Um, look at the company called Arrival out of the UK. Sandy and I just went to San Francisco and we checked out their uh, Arrival Uber vehicle. Um, it was a right-hand drive. It was a prototype, but you know it 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 could be 
viable shortly. You have companies like Zooks and Waymo. And the key is when you talk about robo-taxi, is this fully autonomous? Is there no one in the car? Or is this a, a low-cost taxi that's made for low speed only? So once you hit commercial designation, the vehicle gets a lot cheaper because you don't have to pass all of the the high safety standards, whether that's IIHS, Euro NCAP, or NISHTA, for roof cut, roof crush tests, oblique pull tests, SORB, small overlap rigid barrier test, um, all these like uh, FMVS 226 ejection mitigation is intended for high speed rollovers to retain passengers in vehicles of like SUVs and actually all cars since 2016. Um, all these standards I just mentioned, which people may, may or may not be aware of, they drive tremendous amount of cost in the vehicle, whether that's safety equipment, high-end seatbelt systems, high-end uh, uh, stability control, um, uh, ultra-high-strength steel throughout the structure, hot-form steel in the B-pillar for roof crush. These are all uh, uh, methods that OEMs have added to the car that are very expensive to help make the car safer, to protect for driver error. You know, so cars that are crashed that don't have any autonomous capability are wrecked by drivers that typically make errors. They hit a snow patch, they, they're speeding, they slide off a road, uh, you, you know what I mean? And the watershed moment will be maybe 25 years from now, 35, 50 years from now, when the AI associated with driving vehicles becomes better in mass, meaning the majority of the vehicles out there are now controlled by, uh, you know, some sort of autonomous capability where it becomes dangerous for a human to drive a vehicle. And whenever that gets outlawed, the cost of the structure of the vehicle will plummet. You can make a vehicle out of balsa wood and plastic because it will never get in an accident. I, I'm not. I'm not kidding. It can be a thin layer of balsa wood, you know, trapped in plastic, and, and no steering wheel, no steel, no aluminum, because that vehicle will never get drunk and drive 90 miles an hour down the highway and run a red light. You know that is what I, I hope I'm alive to see the day that the billions of dollars a year that are spent on protecting humans that make errors, all of that equipment is no longer needed. That will drop the cost of the vehicle. Once you pull all that out, the amount of mass and cost of that, you could look at, I'd say, 4000 to $8,000 of a vehicle is derived from all of the things to protect drivers. Crush cans and safety features and all this stuff, seat belts. You pull that out, now a low-cost BEV is very easy because you need a lot less batteries. The motors can be smaller because the vehicle's just tooling around town and taking you to and from work. Um, so I don't know if... Uh, I'll be alive when that happens, but I, I hope there's a day where the National Highway Safety Transportation Administration or NISTA uh, essentially says, hey, these cars are so safe that you can build them however you want now because they're not going to crash. That's a fascinating thought because so I'm, I'm in the uh, full self-driving beta program for, for Tesla. And when I drive around, like 50% of the time, I'm like, 
man, if every other car was autonomous like this one, like we could do this tomorrow. Because <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like 90, 95% of the inter interventions I have to do is because there is a behavior on the road that that forces me to, to take over. Like there's something weird going on with another car. It's, it's rarely, if ever, the car doing something like getting close to a curb or trying to hit something. It's like something else happening around me that's causing me to take over. Um, and that's the fact that there's so much cost associated to the safety things sort of made a light bulb go out like go up for me because then the assumption there becomes as as autonomous driving uh becomes more and more common you're not just getting a cost benefit a cost savings from the fact that you know say with a uber or whatever you don't have a driver involved anymore and you're also getting uh theoretically better safety out of the autonomous vehicle but you're also going to have a much lower cost associated to the materials of building the car because yeah. you don't have to put in so much extra effort to ensure that there isn't a high-speed collision between two drivers essentially so that's yeah. that's pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, and another point that I can make that drives me absolutely crazy is there's somebody on my LinkedIn that always comments on Tesla stuff whenever anyone's talking about the gigacastings. And their comment is always around serviceability. And it's always in big caps, like, you can never service a gigacasting. If you get in an accident, you're going to have to scrap the car. Now, when I read this, this person is clearly maybe a baby boomer generation. And it's like they're fighting for the auto body shop. Now, imagine a world in 50 years or 100 years where no cars crash. The auto body shops may disappear. They'll turn into just wrap shops, you know, wrapping your AI car or whatever. So it's like, He's on a soapbox fighting for this serviceability because cars have always been built for the idiotic humans that drive them that smash into stuff. So we have to put the repairability in there. So the repairability aspect of cars also drives a huge amount of weight and costs. The repairability. Slip planes in the body structure, areas that bolt in and out. Uh, that don't need to be there once again. So I know there's a safety aspect, but there's the repairability from an accident perspective. And if a Tesla on you know, full self-driving, I think Elon has said it's four times less likely to crash, then why compromise the build structure of your vehicle by having all those hundreds and hundreds of parts in the body that are replaced by the gigacasting why compromise the entire vehicle for the idiots that are going to crash at 50 miles an hour, right? When, when the vehicle has all these features to, first of all, keep it from crashing, even when you're driving through like a t automatic braking and whatnot, and not only a future where the vehicles are better drivers than the average human. And, and it's very nearsighted to fight for serviceability in an impact that's so nearsighted and I never engage. I don't engage down in the troll level of LinkedIn or or or, or um, the YouTube comments. But just think. Think of the future where cars don't crash. It is literally an argument that should never have to be made. Agreed. So around the topic of, of full self-driving. So Elon Musk has been very... Uh, his language is becoming more and more confident that in, by the end of this year, uh, I, I might miss 
speak a little bit here, but level four autonomy for Tesla, he thinks it will be feature complete, that they'll have a level four autonomous uh, version of, of the Tesla car, which uh, it will still imply that the uh, driver would, there would still need to be a pedal and uh, a, a steering wheel system for the driver to have to take over in certain parts of driving. But what I what I assume from this is that most of the time you're gonna uh, not you won't have to drive like the car is gonna drive for you in most situations. Do you think that is actually going to happen in the next say six to nine months? Six to nine months? Uh, no, I, I do not. And because level four is a very very high threshold. I mean, it's a very high threshold. Level five is ridiculous. That's like where the car just drives across the country to pick you up you know, and does your errands for you. Um, we have a whole team uh, led by Chris Fox at Monroe and Associates that all they do is study um, the ADAS componentry as well as the different claims by the different OEMs. And um, level three, level two, two and a half, three, we're seeing a lot of OEMs get there, um, but only in certain scenarios like i think the gm and the ford system they work on only certain stretches of road um the tesla uh fsd fsd beta particularly i know sandy's written in it we've seen it we've studied it we've studied the hardware particularly that is the most utilitarian it can it can be deployed in the most uh useful scenarios uh you know complex uh, corridors cities I mean, I've seen several videos of people driving from like L.A. to San Francisco or, or I forget all through the Bay without any interventions. Um, but we're intently focused on the, the limitations of the hardware. So is that processor able to process all the information at the speed that's necessary? Is the cameras and the connectors uh, able to handle the type of latency needed and the jitter uh, associated with processing the data. And we're currently diving really deep into a study on the hardware capabilities of each OEM. So whether they're using radar, LIDAR, ultrasonic, cameras, stereo cameras, and we've been trying to onboard uh, different experts in the field. So I, I don't have a definitive answer for whether or not 4 is capable with the current hardware. So already, you know, early Model 3s had to have their computers up, upgraded from, from 2.5 to 3. Um, so will there be a point where you have to upgrade from 3 to 4? You know, so the, the jury is still out on, on our assessment of, of, the, uh, of their actual hardware and its ability to achieve level four. Um, and we think that it's it's capable, but the most valuable aspect of the entire beta program is the data that's being collected by Tesla. Data is oftentimes more valuable. Um, the pool of data is oftentimes more valuable than uh, the hardware vehicles themselves. And, um, um, so I know it's a long-winded answer. I think it's about it's it's a maybe, and we're investigating heavily. We want to be as educated as possible if we're gonna if we're gonna make a statement on that. No, I appreciate that answer. When do you have a timeline as to when you'll think you'll you'll know, and is that something that you would make public? We're probably not going to make it public because it will be something that'll be really valuable for us to sell. So, uh, circling back to 
Monroe and Associates, you know, we are an engineering firm first. It's it's our primary source of of revenue, and the YouTube channel has been a tremendous, uh, you know, like microphone for for our firm and our brand to get our voice out there. But that is something that Sandy and I talked about, uh, most likely offering for sale first, and we may talk about it at a higher level. But but I think we're already we already have a couple hundred pages of of report and analysis developed on that by the team. And uh, we're going to try and monetize that selfishly. Yep. You're a business. <laughs> you should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's, that's great information. I really appreciate that. Um, so let's, let, let me ask a hypothetical question. So in the event where, let's say Tesla and whatever OEM, so let's say by the end of next year, let's just use end of next year as an example, uh, they start reaching a level where uh, level four and even potentially level five is becoming not just uh, uh, something that could potentially target, but a reality, like it's a clear path for them to get there. Do you see regulating bodies lessening the safety requirements on the manufacturers that are able to reach autonomy uh, over time? Or do you like, because you know, we talk about the four to $8,000 worth of materials and whatever systems you have to build into the car that are safety related. But if now you have a subset of the manufacturers capable of offering extremely high safety, do you think the regulatory bodies are going to allow some of these manufacturers to take advantage of the cost savings that would appear from having a, a, a level four, even level five autonomous system available in the cars? How do you think about that? Yeah, my answer is twofold there. I think it will first be low speed vehicles will be allowed to circumvent those requirements. Um, so that would be like an Uber type vehicle in like downtown San Francisco, but it will not be able to get on the freeway. It won't be able to go 55 miles an hour through a high speed intersection. It'll be made for that under really under 25 miles an hour, under 35 miles an hour scenario. You'll see those deployed in major metropolitan areas where you have lots of stop and go and idling. And that will be an area that is divergent from, from what a lot of OEMs are focusing on. So a lot of OEMs will focus on selling, selling a vehicle to ownership and that ride share um, type of model, whether Uber or Lyft buys these in masses. And once you get into a metropolitan area, you'll no longer be riding in a traditional OEM You'll you'll be dri you'll be driving in one of these uh, many startups that that don't even exist yet. So I have been talking to a few different people, entrepreneurs, that are seeking to enter this market in particular, and the the big value there is you don't need a steering wheel, you don't need all that all you know part of the little you know soapbox speech I gave about eliminating all that. It makes it viable to make a balsa wood you know, little bubble that you can get in with three or four of your friends and it takes you from your hotel to the restaurant. And um, you don't got to pay the driver. It's super efficient. And I think that market will will grow, particularly starting three to five years from now. And it'll fit a need that is currently filled by, like Sandy and I were in San Francisco with uh, our sales guy, Mike. And we had to get Uber XLs. So people were showing up in minivans and and Toyota Highlanders and these big vehicles, and most of them were hybrids, you know, we were tooling around uh, 
tooling around San Francisco, you know, driving two and three miles at a time. And really so much wasted space was taken up by the, the front where the engine is, the driver, the front seat, the center console, the back. Um, it could be achieved in a much better way. And then that was my, my first part of the answer. But the second part is I'm still sticking to my guns when I say that we're still decades and decades away from deregulation of high-speed vehicle safety features. If, if there are human beings that have the option to drive on the road, there is a human being that has the option to get drunk and run a red light and ru run into a, a deregulated little pod. So that would never fly. It, you, you, just, you have to protect yourself from the idiocracy of the, of the masses that have the freedom to drive a car and speed and do all the ridiculous stuff that, that I see on the road today. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense on, on the topic of the, of the sort of robo taxi style self-driving thing in the city. Is there an optimal, uh, seat number that, that would make the most sense on something like that? Is that a six seater, a four seater? Have you thought about that at uh, all? I think a, a four seater with the option to squeeze six in, and it'd be f where the passengers are facing each other, where you, you, you'd get in, and that way you can have one door on either side. You don't have to have four doors. Uh, one door on either side, you get in, you have two people, you know, four people comfortably, six people uncomfortably. Um, that way, something with a very small footprint can achieve the goal of a four to six passenger Uber XL. You know, so, and and then with the option of a smaller one or two passenger thing, but I, I think the start starting off would be six passenger. Okay, and I'm wondering when when Elon talks about robo taxi. So I know he's talked about twenty five thousand dollar car, and he's talked about robo taxi. But in some of the conversations I've had with some of the folks in the Tesla community, and I'm curious to hear your thought. To me, that sounds like two different types of cars. Like the twenty five thousand dollar car is a like a, a smaller model three or Y. And then the robo taxi is like something that you just described, which is a something that's potentially optimally used in a city setting. Do you think that's yeah. likely for Tesla to do that? Um, I, I'm going to tackle the $25,000 car question first. So I could currently tell you how to make a $25,000 model three by decontenting it. If you made it only rear wheel drive, you know, put a very small battery in it. So instead of a 50 kilowatt hour LFP battery, put a 38 kilowatt hour uh, LFP battery. Now the weight drops quite a bit. Eliminate all of the radar cameras and uh, FSD capability. Um, every Tesla currently sold has a, a tremendous amount of costs associated with the circuit boards for FSD beta, whether or not you're using it or not, FSD. You know, so um, you would never see other OEMs give away a module when it's not being used. If you decontent, if you buy the low trim level of a, of a Ford or a Chevy or Chrysler, you're going to be missing all of the, the modules and circuitry and even the wires and the harness that allow you to have those features because they're squeezing the cost out of it. So you can also decontent the screen. The screen can get smaller. The features can 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 eliminate, can be pulled out. Um, I could, and then now you don't have a front suspension. 
Also, the suspension is really expensive with virtual ball. Maybe you have a, a lower cost, like traditional, um, traditional lower control arm. I, I could just pull all the sensors out and you would have a twenty-five dollars to $28,000 electric vehicle. But is that's not a Tesla though. Like people expect every Tesla to have the ability to have FSD, right? So it, it, it depends on the, the culture of what Tesla wants their low cost vehicle to be. Do they still want it to retain all, all those core values that people expect? Imagine if you could buy an iPhone that was super cheap and it didn't have any cameras, like no cameras. Would Apple sell a super cheap iPhone with no cameras? No, I don't think they would. There's like, what is the lowest threshold that defines what people expect out of a vehicle? And, I, and that's why other OEMs aren't bound by those expectations. So you buy a super low cost, you buy a Chevy Bolt. Does that have a FSD you know, capabilities? No. So they're missing that two to $3,000 worth of circuitry, cameras, sensors, and cooling lines and mounting brackets. They don't even have that and they can't make money and they can't get people to buy their vehicles. Like, like it just blows my mind. Uh, like what defines the value that, that, that a manufacturer brings to a customer. So, um, you will have to compromise to get that cost with the current battery and motor technology you will have to have a compromised user experience. You'll have less range. Instead of having 350 to 400 miles of range, you're gonna have 180 to 240 miles of range because that's what will allow the vehicle to be lower cost. The battery is the most expensive aspect of an electric vehicle. Instead of all wheel drive and a huge amount of performance, it's just gonna be front or rear wheel drive. And maybe it won't even be internal permanent magnet motors, which is expensive. It may be just an induction machine with very low power, you know. And can you do and that with front rear castings and a and a and a structural battery pack as well? Would that be because that theoretically reduces cost as well, right? Under that scenario, or no? Yeah, it would reduce cost, but you may struggle. Uh, the cost associated with the cells to fill out the pack to make it structural may actually be more cost than it would be to have a much smaller battery be non-structural. And I, I truly believe that the 4680 form factor is an economy cell. Um, so I've talked with some battery experts and said, hey, you know, the 4680 form factor, this is great for performance. And they actually corrected me. They said, Corey, the reason why Tesla is still using the 18650s is because the average mean distance to the center, so the distance from the outside of the cell to the center, is less. And you go to 46, uh, that's 23 uh, whatever millimeters to the center versus nine. So your ability to reject heat is much uh, greater uh, when you're only pulling from the side nine versus 26. So in a high performance scenarios, heat rejection is one of the most important aspects. So that's why the Plaid still has the 18650 cells with improved chemistry. And I go, oh my gosh, duh, that makes sense. And uh, so I think the 4680 cell will be the economy cell, meaning 
it, it'll be the, the cell form factor that allows Tesla to make their, their packs much cheaper. And it'll be interesting to see um, as we tear those down in the future, how much kilowatt hours they choose to put in them for their full, a pack that's full versus a pack that is a smaller. Yeah. Okay. Got it. That, that's super helpful. And then, and then the, the robo taxi sort of question, do you, do you see Tesla getting into that sort of game where they are trying to build out this sort of four to six seater facing each other, fully autonomous speed capped type of vehicle, or do you think yeah. they're going to take it a different, you think so? I, I think they're going to take their, based on their manufacturing plants and based on his, his Elon's statements from the last shareholder meeting where essentially he, he, it, he punted the development of the low-cost BEV, I think the robo-taxis will be existing vehicles that are deployed with their uh, FSD beta proven out system. I think there will be existing vehicles. I don't think you'll see a new piece of hardware, meaning a new car with a shape and a seats. Um, that is my inclination because the amount of data that would be need to be collected for um, a new form factor, a new set of sensors or cameras would be, is too much of a runway there to launch it based on the timeline that he's saying. So I, I, I don't think that you'll, we'll see some sort of new, new shape of a vehicle just for the taxi because it's too cost prohibitive to, to build a new plant or to dedicate plant plant space to a brand new, you know, a, a brand new form factor of vehicle. Okay. Got it. Okay. Super helpful. Um, okay. Let me, let me ask you a couple more questions and then we can uh, uh, take the sucker home here. Thank you so much for the time. Dude, this has been such a good conversation. I have so many wow. freaking questions. <laughs> uh, I definitely want to be respectful of your time. Um, Okay, I found so I, I I reached out to Twitter and Discord and, and some of the things that I've asked you has been also from the community. So thank you guys, everyone out there for for the questions you guys shared. But there was one that was super fascinating that I wanted to ask you. Um, what important questions are legacy OEMs failing to ask you? Ooh, what important questions are legacy OEMs failing to ask? Ooh. This is a good question. I got to think. This is related to timing. Um, It goes all the way back to 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19. Um, We had a large team supporting a legacy OEM. And at that time, we were starting to, you know, get our, we had a BMW i3, a Tesla, and we were interfacing at a level that could have put that OEM ahead of the curve. If they just would have committed to developing an EV version of any of their popular vehicles. And now it's, I think it's a travesty that they're now asking questions that should have been asked in 2018. You know, I, I, I look at it as a huge opportunity missed um, because there will be electrified versions of popular vehicles from that OEM, but probably coming out two years from now, three years from now, four years from now. And I just imagine the momentum that that, that OEM would have had 
if there was an electrified version of the vehicles that are now only like hybrid versions because um, the hybrid version of one of those vehicles surprisingly is one of the most popular vehicles with that OEM. And it's like, it could have been an EV. It, it could have been an electrified version. And the, the gap that it would have put on its competitors would be hard to recover from. And, you know, Sandy and I were talking the other day, and I have a great relationship with Sandy Monroe. Uh, I've worked with him for 17 or 18 years. And we were joking about how him and I are willing to make decisions that other people say are dumb or risky or stupid. You know, look at the channel itself. Look at Sandy doing some of his videos that are kind of on the edge. And he essentially, this is what Sandy told me. He goes, when other people write your paycheck or if you're not willing to get fired. So like if I, I do what's best for Sandy and I don't, I will put everything on the line for him. And if, and I, I know what, I know what's good for him. And if he wants to fire me, cause I report to Sandy, then he can. I, I am not scared. I, I will succeed in this world no matter what I do. I, I, I am convinced that I'm convinced of that. So I have that mentality and Sandy has that mentality. And when, uh, when somebody else signs your paycheck, when you're working for anyone else, it instills a level of fear in you and it gridlocks your ability to make decisions because you're thinking of your career first, not the car, not the company, the career. So many people are sitting in their desk, sitting at their desk or sitting at home on their computer and they're a level seven or a level eight at GM, or they're working their way up at Ford. And there has there's decisions that have came across their, their desk that may have been great for the car, but the amount of, of shakeup that would have to their organization or their role or how their boss views them, sometimes it did, so many great ideas have been swept under the rug. And that's what I remember most. So the question was, what questions aren't OEMs asking? And we were ready to answer the questions three to five years ago, and they're only now asking the questions. And um, some have come on board earlier, you know, sooner than others. And I applaud those companies that that have came to that realization. Um, but others are are woefully far behind. Wow, that's that's some brilliant commentary there, Corey. Thank you for that. What one of the things that you described the, your and Sandy's relationship, where neither of you guys are afraid to really speak your minds about what the right thing is to do for the for the business and furthering the business forward. I think that was one of the things that was shocking to me when I was at Tesla. So I worked there for a little over four years and myself and someone else at the company, his name is uh, Greg, had a, um, you know, you guys have been together for 17 years and obviously you run a small business, so a very successful one at that. But the, the crazy thing was that within that company, what you just described, like literally I just got flashbacks of Tesla about how much freedom we had to, to shake up, to actually voice our opinions about the right thing to do, not be afraid to go behind someone's back or piss somebody off or afraid that this is going to fire us. And for a company that that's, that's that large to me is so mind blowing. And that's the thing that I'm always thinking about is like, how is Tesla as a hundred thousand employee company is 
capable of having a culture that's super similar to a to a small business that's filled with super talented individuals that work really well together at scale. And I think mm-hmm. to me, that's like the magic of that company to, to the core is the is what you just described exists everywhere. And I just wanted to throw that out there because like that, I can't tell you the amount of flashbacks I just got as you as you walk through that. It speaks to me dearly because I honestly think when it comes to problem solving and making stuff happen, unless you have something like that, you're always going to be suboptimal. You're always not going to, you're never going to get ahead of the curve. You're mm-hmm. never going to have things that uh, people are truly, truly going to love. You're always going to be suboptimal. So yeah, that, that was a fascinating thing you just walked through. Wow. That just blew my mind. Um, okay. Let me, uh, let me uh, bring this home. A uh, couple rapid fire questions, if you don't mind. Uh, these are fun, a little fun questions and uh, we'll take the sucker home. Um, how do you take your coffee? I actually don't drink coffee. Ooh. Okay. Uh, no caffeine. I, I gave up caffeine altogether. Uh, 14 weeks ago, um, I was drink I was drinking energy drinks and pop. So anyone out there, um, I'm only drinking water, believe it or not. And it's had a huge, huge health benefit. I've actually lost 20 pounds in the past, uh, uh, 12 weeks. Um, I, yeah, no coffee for me. That's awesome. Yeah. I remember I, I coffee was, would give me crazy anxiety when I was having it, uh, a few years ago. And then, uh, I sort of battled through that. And then I, I started it again, uh, because I just missed that freaking taste, just that smell yeah. in the morning of coffee, man. Um, no, that, that's, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, how much time do you spend keeping Sandy out of trouble? Oh my gosh. Um, I would say a better part of 40% of my day. Um, it's no, it's knowing what messages to deliver to Sandy. Sometimes, I, like I received some news of an employee leaving last week, uh, Wednesday, while we we're in California. I knew to tell him on Saturday morning when we were leaving. Otherwise, it would really affect, you know, how he would, how he was acting during our press event with arrival. So, um, it's carefully delivering information to Sandy and, and keeping him out of trouble. Uh, it's about 40% of my day. Okay. <laughs> I remember when we were at TeslaCon, uh, when uh, we went up for the panel, Sandy, myself, and Jordan, and uh, I remember talking to you afterwards. So, like, when you asked that question about GM and Mary Barr, I'm like, oh my God, what's Sandy going to say? And it looks like Sandy just like deferred it. I was like, yeah, no, Jordan, you got it. So, that was, it was funny seeing that live. Uh, that, that was so freaking funny. Um, how many beers can Sandy drink in one sitting? Ooh, how many beers can Sandy drink in one sitting? I've never seen him go to the limit, um, but I, I've seen him drink at least six to eight beers in, in a solid, you know, dinner plus night. He's a scotch. He's a scotch drinker, actually. He prefers scotch. Yeah. I prefer bourbon and beer. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Bourbon's bourbon's something I've been getting into lately. I'm I'm more of a Scotch guy. I like like the um like Lagavulin and Lafroig and those guys are, are ones that I really, oh, really yeah. enjoy. Yeah, they're super smoky. Um <laughs> what's the secret to your fantastic hair? That was a question that I got from somebody on Twitter. They had a picture of oh. you at a supercharger and your hair was like done up and all slick looking. It's like make sure you ask him what's his secret for oh, his awesome gosh. hair. So uh, I I it, it's genetic. So uh, all my grandparents had full heads of hair when they were in their 60s and 70s, and my dad does too. And my sister was a hairstylist, so I actually pay a hundred 
like a hundred dollars for a haircut cut from uh, this woman named Taylor uh, at uh, Detroit Chop House. Uh, yeah, Detroit City, Detroit over everything. It's over in, in Lake Orion. And um, she actually reminds me when I need to get a haircut. But I just put I just put stuff in it. But that's very nice. I mean, I, I come from a family where my sister was a hairstylist, so I always try and have my hair cut or, or styled. So thanks for that. Nice. Um, and then last but not least, this one's a more philosophical question, which I like to end my podcast with. Um, what do you think is humanity's purpose? Ooh, humanity's purpose. Oh, man, that's deep. Yeah, I always, I always like to leave that one for last when everyone's brain is fried. <laughs> yeah, if, if you dive really deep into like the soul of a human being is to be, a, you know, I strive to be a good person. So whether that's caring for people or helping other people out. And when I first met my wife, she kind of gave me a hard time because I had a truck and anytime anyone moved... I would always offer to help them move. Uh, my buddy Jamie Crane, I'd helped him move. I help people move. And I was in Michigan kind of alone. My whole family's in Nebraska. And I was always a firm believer that the more you put into life helping other people, the more you get out of, get get back out of it. And I look at myself as extremely blessed. Um, I have three beautiful children, a beautiful wife. And I look at it as reaping the rewards of trying to be the best person that I, that I can be, even in my early life. And I continue to try and treat everyone with the same level of respect, whether they're an intern or the CEO of a corporation. So now when you look at how that expands out into humanity, um, there is some evil out there, but I think as a whole we are coming to the realization that we need to treat our planet better. We need to treat other people better. And, you know, I have a lot of hope for humanity, particularly uh, as I get older, um, because the, the past century was pretty rough with uh, World War One and World War Two and all the wars. And what's going on in Ukraine right now is, is just kind of baffling to me. And I, and I hope there, I hope to get to a point where, uh, that's all behind us as a as a human race. Yeah, that's beautifully said, man. Thank you for sharing that for sure. Are you originally from Nebraska? Is that where you're originally from? I am Lincoln, Nebraska. Corn Cornhuskers fan. I am a Cornhuskers fan, and I want to go on the go on the record that Nebraska will be twelve and zero this year. No way with Scott Frost. Yeah. Yep, and the reason I'm saying that is go look at their schedule. <laughs> so if if I can get a little plug in here. Um, Nebraska lost nine games last year, which sounds bad, but they set the record for most losses uh, under by one by one score. So think of Michigan, Ohio State, Michigan State, all these really really great teams. They were either Nebraska was either leading in the game and blew a lead, or had the ball under three minutes with a chance to win. It, it was literally the most agonizing experience last season. Even the Iowa game at the end of the year, Nebraska had the lead entering the fourth quarter and lost it. So the schedule got so much easier this year. Uh, they play Northwestern to start off the season, a few easy non-conference games, Oklahoma at home. Oklahoma has a new coach. 
Then you get into conference schedule, Indiana, Rutgers, Purdue, Minnesota, no longer Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan State. So so if if you're out there and you're like, man, Corey's crazy, go look at the go look at that schedule. And look how close all the losses were last year. And then uh, I, I see Nebraska losing to Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship this year. So uh, I'll pull the yeah yeah I'll 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 put I'll I'll pull this back up uh, in October or November or December. Yeah, I I remember watching some of their. So I went to Penn State. I'm a big Penn State fan. Oh, uh, man, yeah. yeah. And uh, we played. We played. I remember we were up. We were. We had a seven zero record or six and zero record. And then we played Iowa. We were up in the second quarter. And then our freaking quarterback gets hurt. And then from that point forward, we lost like the next five games or something. Yeah. So I was like, damn. Like we actually had a. I think we were ranked number three at some point or something. I know. Um. It was like we were doing so well, and then our freaking quarterback got hurt. And I'm like, damn it. But at least he's coming back. I think this year we'll probably be. I'm gonna guess like nine and three, ten and two. If I'm if I'm gonna be honest, because we'll probably lose to Ohio State. And we might lose against like Michigan, maybe. I forget if we're playing Wisconsin or not. But I remember watching Nebraska, man, and I'm like, like I, th- I really do think Scott Frost is a good coach. I really think he's a good coach. And if, I think last season they were just so freaking unlucky. Like just that whatever that it takes to win that game at the end, like it just didn't go their way every yeah. single time. And I was like, man. Our, our, our quarterback who left, Adrian Martinez, was a phenomenal quarterback, but under pressure – it just never worked out. And now uh, we we did amazing. In, Nebraska did amazing in the transfer portal. We got uh, Casey Thompson from Texas, who was their starter for the first like three or four games, and Chubba, Chubba Purdy from Florida State, as well as another uh, 10 to 12 pieces uh, through the transfer portal. I think Nebraska had one of the top 10 rated transfer classes at, at immediate need. So I know the, the transfer portal and the NIL thing are like a big uh, – a big a big thing but i i'm really looking forward to the season this year because i've been stuck in football purgatory since 2002 uh because nebraska has been mediocre since then yeah we're at nine and three every season under bo pelini right it was like the like the trend yeah man well best of luck to nebraska Uh, best of luck to them and and you and um i'm definitely going to follow their games like i said i like scott frost and i actually i've always liked nebraska like super classy program i feel like the fans have always been so polite and uh they're just uh and they always have such solid fundamental football you know that's the one thing that i really liked about nebraska watching them so i can't wait to see them uh hit that 12 and 0 record and hopefully we meet them (laughs) penn state meets them in the big 10 championship and hopefully we win that so we'll see what happens but um thank you very much for your time Hi, man. Really appreciate you and uh, all the work Monroe's doing. Uh, make sure you say, uh, tell Sandy hi from me. And uh, uh, definitely thank you to, to your crew and everything you guys have done. I, I really think you guys have probably the most valuable uh, channel for Tesla investors out there, especially because you guys just provide so much insight, not just into that company, but their competitors as well. And you do so in such a clear manner that makes uh, difficult engineering things uh, very easy to understand. So props to you guys and your team. And thank you so much for making the time uh, uh, to speak with me today, man. Seriously, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me, Farzad. I really appreciate it.